Welcome to Texas Rising, a show that explores the driving forces behind the financial phenomenon that is the Texas miracle. Join your hosts, business leaders and dads, Jeff Bailey and Ben Coleman, as they bring you luminaries from across the great state of Texas to talk business, culture, public policy, and much more. And now, coming to you from deep in the heart of Texas, this is Texas Rising. Welcome back to another episode of Texas Rising. Jeff, honored to be here again with you tonight on a great topic about energy. And it's something I know you and I talked about over the past couple of years, wide ranging conversation. We're going to have two great guests on. One, one of my close sponsors and mentors during my time at McKinsey, Micah Smith, who's a senior partner there and does a lot with oil and gas. And then your friend, Sam Warfield, who's at Arroyo energy investors. Before we dive into that, I know there's a couple articles that piqued your interest this week. What have you seen on Newsways that's interesting and we should talk about? Ben, glad to be back with you this week talking about energy. I'm very energetic about this week. A couple of quick round robin articles to talk about around the state of Texas. It's time for this episode's installment of Hear Ye, Hear Y'all. First up, Texas relocations continue. Allegheny Technologies is, has announced they are moving their headquarters from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania to Dallas, Texas. The company said in a public filing that the headquarters move provides, quote, an independent centralized headquarters location expected to strengthen its strategic focus and support the independent functioning of its other operational hubs. The move has the potential to bring 1,500 jobs to the DFW Metroplex here over time. The great thing is Allegheny Technologies joins global manufacturing and equipment maker Caterpillar, who just two weeks ago announced that it is also moving its global headquarters from Illinois, just outside Chicago, here to Texas. A company spokesperson for Caterpillar said that most of the 230 employees that are based in Illinois will transition to the new headquarters here in the DFW Metroplex over time. Caterpillar and Allegheny Technologies joined companies like Oracle, Apple, and Tesla Hewlett-Packard, who have recently moved headquarters or consolidated significant operations uh, to the state of Texas. Texas is now home to more Fortune 500 companies than any other state. My question, Ben, to you is, what do you think it is that's attracting companies like Allegheny and not just, you know, smaller, mid-sized companies like Allegheny Technologies, but also attracting, you know, global brands like Caterpillar. Well, Jeff, this is a broken record at this point. I mean, the influx of companies big and small to Texas, it's almost old news, but it's just remarkable that every week and every month we can come back to it and talk about the economic engine that is Texas. And honestly, I think this is a great indicator of the value of federalism where different states are allowed to experiment social issues, or in this case, economic development issues, and try out different philosophies. And what we're seeing is that the business-friendly climate that Texas is offering other states is attracting folks to come here and relocate their corporate headquarters. What's also interesting is you look at some of the responses from the Chicago's, for instance, where they lost Caterpillar, and trying to gloss over the fact that, hey, we do have economic growth, but you can't point to anything. And they're still losing major corporations and organizations. But I think it is this mindset of always wanting to be in the frontier, pushing the envelope and allowing for a business-friendly environment where folks can have a low-tax environment. They have a workforce that's increasingly educated. And it's just going to be a, a virtuous cycle where the more companies you have, the more people you have, the more talent you have, 
the more more companies are going to want to come in and build on that success. But I don't know. You've been here longer than I have, Jeff. What have you seen happen in the past 10 years that you think is driving companies here? Yeah, it's, it's a really good question. First and foremost, let me just say that Virtuous Cycle would be an awesome name for a band. So just something to think about there. That's, that's our next gig after that. That's our next gig after the yeah. podcast. We'll start a band called Virtuous Cycle. It's a really good question. You know, one of the, one of the challenges that I have always had just being, uh, I consider myself a very competitive person, and I am always shocked at what what I personally believe, you know, states like California, Illinois, New York, others who don't seem to have, you know, whether from a constructive regulatory environment standpoint, whether it be a you know an onerous business environment and, and that that's not exact, not as supportive of companies and and job creators as as I personally believe it should be, I, I'm always amazed that they're just either their lack of ability or their refusal to compete, right? You would think that as, you know, just take a state like California, where you've had uh, for the past uh, two years in a row, net net negative migration. You would think that, you know, the most, most populous state in the nation, seventh largest economy in the world in the state of California, that they would say to themselves, huh, what, what is it that we're doing wrong here, right? And then try and take an assessment, reassess and, 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 and change course. That does not seem to be the case for a lot of those states to, to the benefit of the state of Texas, right? And so I think you've got a legislature and an executive branch in Austin um, that is, is ardently pro-business that is determined to create a constructive regulatory environment, a legal environment uh, where you don't see a lot of you know frivolous lawsuits that that can add cost to to businesses like like you do have in in some other states. And so I think that you see companies and and job creators respond to that that they know that they're going to be you know moving from a place that may not support their desire to innovate, their desire to create jobs, to create prosperity and growth for a community for a state. And they see a state like Texas that is is ready, willing, and able to do that. And a, a lot of that's you know hyperbole, but at the same time, I fundamentally believe that's in our DNA as a as a state dating back you know historically that you know Texas was you know originally the the frontier, and you came to Texas to to claw out and 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 build literally with your own two hands build a life for yourself, and that is still very much ingrained in who we are as a people. And I think that that helps to uh, attract you know, businesses and, and people today, as we've talked about, that creates, that comes with its own set of problems and issues, right? That, that are, that are at the definition of first world problems, but, you know, problems nonetheless. I think you hit on something important, which is the, the self-selection and the type of individuals that are attracted to states like Texas. You know, I think of Europe and Europe has a very strong social safety net. They have moderate growth, but not great. But the type of people who are there, they're trading off some of the upside to minimize the downside uncertainty of an entrepreneurial environment. And you think about the people who left Europe you know, 200, 300 years ago, who came to the United States, there was something about that personality type that they couldn't help but want to be in the forward edge and take more risk. Take Texas especially, I think it would be remiss to, to dismiss the impact, positive impact of immigration, especially, mm-hmm. you know, you look at folks coming from south of the border, and a lot of times they have a very tangible reason to leave. They want a better economic environment for themselves, and you know, you can debate the policy of open or closed borders, but the type of personality it takes to come here and be entrepreneurial and yeah. literally uproot your entire family to go somewhere new, 
that's a mindset that is unique and someone who's going to be forward-leaning and risk-taking. And the history of Texas is really of attracting people from across the country to an inhospitable place, but that has a lot of opportunity with not a lot of restrictions. And I think we're just kind of seeing that come full circle now where folks in states like New York and Illinois and California, they're almost happy with the status quo. Now, Silicon Valley is an obvious exception, but you're seeing a lot of these Silicon Valley firms come to Austin, come to San Antonio, come to Dallas, come to Houston, because they want to be part of an environment where they are free to take risk. And that just builds upon itself. I, I think that I think that's right. The other issue in terms of of taking risk is being in an environment where if you deploy capital, if you hire employees, if you have capital outlays to create product and take those products to market and sell those products or services, you want to know that if I'm going to take that risk, that risk will be rewarded and validated if I'm successful in the marketplace. And so I think that's also a, a crucial piece of it as well. Yeah, and I just want the last thing on that. I don't. I don't want to steal a thunder from the energy conversation which we're about to have, which is going to be great. But you think about Texas as the heart of energy in America, and a lot of people think of it as petroleum, but we also have a huge impact on the renewable space. And it wasn't driven by subsidies, it was driven by opportunity. And even though petroleum and oil and gas is a huge part of our economy, there are wildcatters out there who are going to try to make money no matter what is out there. And so you're seeing this, this bottom-up move to take advantage of wind, take advantage of hydro, take advantage of, of batteries in a way that's accretive economically. And some of them have failed, some of them continue to fail, but it just is this mindset of how can we push the envelope even further to drive economic advance. Yeah, no, I, I, and it, it's funny that you say that because you know one of my jobs in a former life was uh, was was incredibly blessed. Had a mentor that was a, a wildcatter, one of the biggest names in in Texas and American energy. And a couple of things about him was he was a he was the definition of a wildcatter, and would tell you that he's drilled more dry holes than than anybody in the world. But at the same time, was always willing to risk capital because he knew the rewards that were there in a state like Texas. You know, the other issue that I think is amazing is he's built his fortune in oil and gas, but at the same time in 2008 was also building at the time the largest wind farm in the world in Pampa, Texas in the Panhandle. So very much understood the value of, of the plentiful resources and the energy mix here in the state of Texas. And to your point earlier, been about some of these other states having a, a robust social safety net. He was also a man that was just incredible in a number of ways, but in my favorite way that he set a goal for himself in his 30s to give a billion dollars away to charity before he passed away. And he was successful in that. And so I just think, you know, how incredible it is that we have men and women entrepreneurs who are willing to risk capital, to take risks, to create jobs and prosperity for other people. And at the same time, take the benefits of that prosperity and, and give it away to charity is just uh, and just another great example of, of how great Texas is. So um, some breaking news tonight out of the governor's office. This afternoon, Governor Abbott announced that Globatech, a subsidiary of Taiwan-based Global Wafers Company, has chosen Sherman, Texas for a new $5 billion dollar wafer manufacturing facility. Globatech's announcement uh, will provide 1,500 new jobs to the Sherman area, which is just remarkable. And that project will help manufacture chips for the global semiconductor industry. You know, Ben, it's it's amazing when you really think about it. 
The latest announcement today means that in the past 12 months alone, nearly $60 billion in incremental semiconductor wafer manufacturing has been announced right here in Texas. Globotech joins the $17 billion Samsung facility that was announced and is currently under construction uh, down in Williamson County in Central Texas, just north of Austin, as well as the $32 billion Texas Instrument facilities uh, that were also announced in Sherman. So Sherman, Texas, little Sherman, Texas, there on the border of the on the banks of the Red River is effectively the the U now the U.S. hub for global wafer manufacturing, which is incredible. Yeah. And aside from the jobs, the money coming to Texas, which is pretty incredible, you know, you look at what's happening across the country and semiconductors are the new manufacturing haven. I know there's ones being built outside of Ohio uh, and other heartland areas of America. And this is a national security movement right now. You know, you look at where most of semiconductors are coming and they're coming from Taiwan. Mm-hmm. Uh, obviously, Taiwan is an ally of ours and the United States has been a strong supporter of theirs. But there is global risk to having that supply chain constraint there, especially given Ukraine, potential moves that the Chinese would want to make in the South China Sea against Taiwan. You know, for a long time, and I was a huge advocate of this, globalization took our nation by storm. You could see the benefits of it. You could also see the downtrods of it. But what we've done is we've basically outsourced our entire manufacturing capability to other countries. And that has been a boon to the American consumer. I think we've taken advantage of that and certainly have many material things that have come from that, but it's left us vulnerable. And what we're seeing now is a desire to onshore a lot of these technologies that are critical for our society to move forward. And I'll say one more thing. You know, I was at a conference two weeks ago which was a number of CEOs and investors who were building hard tech, specifically in the aviation industry. And the number of non-military, non-government, pure entrepreneurs who talked about the global trade battle, talked about bringing things back to the US and how important it was to build America astounded me. And so this movement to take things back from China especially is really gaining steam And I think the United States at a cultural level is now willing to pay a little bit more in order to have things onshore or at least in different locations, whether it be the Philippines or India or Mexico, such that we can control it better and not be as beholden to some of these global movements. I, I think that's right. You know, just as a, a further point on that. So there's a, a great book, if anybody's in the mood for a new read. Peter Zion is a demographic economist that, that I'm a big fan of. Uh, he sees the world and economic growth in terms of a couple of things. He sees it through demographics, through geography, and through access to natural resources. Just came out with a new book last week. Uh, I saw uh, today it had made the New York Times bestseller list. Really good, really good book called The End of the World is Just the Beginning, kind of charting out the, the potential destruction of globalization that's really built up here over the past two, three decades. And China in particular, a couple of data points that are that are fascinating. According to Chinese demographic data that they are now starting to make public, 
The Chinese have overcounted their population by 100 million people since uh, their 2000 census. Kind of global collective wisdom was that the Chinese population would decrease by 50% by the year 2100. Now, many believe that that's going to occur between uh, sometime between 2050 and 2070. So there are any number of national security and economic security global impacts to that when you have a nation that goes from 1.2, 1.3 billion people to 600 million people in a lifetime. Um, that's incredibly disruptive. A couple other data points here over the past 15 years, Chinese labor has labor costs have increased 9x. And in 2021 was actually the first time in history that Mexican labor was cheaper than Chinese labor. So I think in terms of you know North American energy security, North American economic security, viewing the onshoring of manufacturing through the lens of American security and economic interests, national interests, uh, I think Mexico is going to be one of the, the biggest global benefactors of the end of globalization, if you want to view it that way, a little hyperbole, but but still uh, kind of puts it in context. And, you know, the largest uh, Mexico is Texas largest trading partner. So I think Texas has a lot to benefit in terms of investment uh, over the course of our lifetime, you know, three to five decades, as well as jobs and, and growth because of the onshoring that's going to occur. So I, I just think all around it's a uh, it, it's it's a great thing. It's a great read. Pick it up. It's uh, it's really worth your time. No, that, that's absolutely right. I think his previous to the axonal superpower was something that really shaped my view of the macroeconomic environment and global conflicts to come. But that demog dem demographic destiny kind of phrase is really true. When you look at the macro scale, it's not just China, it's Russia that is already having decline. And I think we're seeing that come to the fore in Ukraine. Japan is already in the downward spiral. I was looking at a map this afternoon that talked about the European total fertility rate. The highest is actually France at 1.8. And as you all know, the replacement is 2.1. But places like Italy and some of the Balkan states, they're like 1.2 or 1.3. I mean, the next 30 years, there is going to be a population collapse in the previous economic drivers of our world. Uh, and even in developing countries, Africa, India, the, the fertility rates has dropped precipitously. They're still above replacement, but not where they were previously. And I think how that applies to Texas, though, if you look at you know the path of growth, you could potentially ascribe a lot of the, the growth in the stock market in the US in the past 50 years to the fact that we've had a gangbusters population growth. Well, we're flattening out at this point. And you know, I, I'm not the crystal ball person indicator, but I think that we're going to see slowed on the overall market. But with Texas continuing to grow, pulling from states like we mentioned, Illinois, New York, Oregon, California, that's going to be to Texas's benefit because mm -hmm. we're going to have more population. That's going to bring in more consumer needs, more demand. It's going to drive housing. And so even if the rest of the US has a flat population growth, with Texas continuing to accelerate, more of the gains are going to create here, which is just going to drive even more economic value. So that demographics destiny is so true, especially at the state level. By the way, I'm definitely, when this podcast is over tonight, I'm definitely going to try that on my wife and be like, honey, demographics is destiny. We have, it is in the national interest of the national security of the United States that we have that, that, that we have another child. So I'm going to see how the, multiply, Jeff. This I'm is like the, one of the first scriptural things. That's right. Know? I'm literally tonight. I'm like, Honey, Ben said demographics <laughs> is destiny. So I'll let you know how that goes.
I'm sure you'll hear from her. So, yes, yes, I bet. I bet. Uh, but speaking of destiny, uh, football fans can rejoice. No, not that kind of football. Uh, but the World Cup is coming to the Lone Star State. Houston and Arlington were two cities that were named as host cities for the 2026 World Cup. FIFA announced Houston and Arlington's selection Thursday afternoon. Uh, they joined 14 other cities from the United States, Canada, and Mexico. It will be the, the Texas World Cup matches will be played at AT&T Stadium in Arlington and NRG Stadium in Houston. And the number of games played in each venue will be announced, you know, sometime, you know, TBD at a later date. Uh, it will be the first time city of Houston will host a World Cup game in the city's history. And here in North Texas, the Cotton Bowl was actually a venue for a World Cup game back in 1994. So... Ben, I don't know if you're a big soccer fan. I will tell you, you know, whenever the World Cup comes around outside of, you know, the last time the United States uh, didn't make it. Um, by the way, statistically, how does a nation of 320 million people not find 15 people that can compete in global <laughs> soccer? That's a fundamental question I still have. But looks like uh, not only is, is the United States in the World Cup this time, well, not only are we competitive, but it looks like we're in a grouping that's going to give us a, a success uh, or a potential, at least for a, a decent run in the World Cup. So I don't know, Ben, kind of what your thoughts are, but, it, you know, again, not a huge soccer fan, but I, I do think it's a really cool opportunity. Yeah, when I first heard the news, two things came to mind. The first was, when can I put my house on Airbnb for that week and try to mag go to go to go to Colorado and see what we can get for it. The second was scanning. It was, it was an ESPN article about it, kind of all the venues they had selected, and they had the hypothesis of what round each of these venues was going to have. So you know, the the Meadowlands and you know the group round and the quarterfinals. And like, oh, Dallas is probably going to get you know, some, some minor thing, but they had us slated as the semifinal or final, oh, which would cool. be absolutely remarkable. And I think it's because of Jerry's palace, you know, a hundred thousand plus people could be crammed in there. And so this multi-billion dollar investment that he made truly is uh, attractive. I mean, you see national championships played there, Super Bowls played there, huge concerts, infrastructure and buildings are still attracting really interesting places. And uh, so I'm super excited uh, for when the World Cup comes here. I'm not a big soccer guy day to day, but when the World Cups happen, we turn it on, uh, stay up late in the evening and uh, and ensure that we're watching it. But it'll be great to have it here in Dallas. You know, one of the things that I'd love, I do love about soccer and and you've got obviously you've got different leagues across Europe. But one of the things that I really do love is the patch. So, you know, when Scotland is playing England, when you've got France and Germany that are playing each other, when you have people and I, the challenge is the only thing I can kind of compare it to in the United States is SEC football. And that's still not a great analogy that when you have two nations who have literally hated each other for a thousand years that are playing each other uh, in soccer, that is the kind of passion that is that it that really does. I really do admire about soccer. It makes it fun to watch. And that's, you know, when you've got Obviously, at Jerry World, I would assume it's going to be, uh, you know, the United States and China, uh, you know, something like that. So it'll be it'll be fun to, to root for the USA to, to win it all. No, for sure. For sure. Well, just putting us on the map. But real, real quick, Ben, speaking of football, uh, we've got the biggest breaking news story here, maybe of all time, that occurred last week out of Austin. The announcement that Arch Manning will attend the University of Texas and lead the Longhorns march to its first SEC title in year one of SEC play. So I can imagine all of our listeners 
probably all they've been able to think about or talk about here over the past couple of days. But, you know, Longhorn World is on fire right now. And uh, I don't know if you know this or not, but Texas is back. So, you know, take it to the well, back. They've, they've got nowhere to go but up. So, you know, nope, it's all listen, upside from here. Listen, Ben, hate speech. We have no place for hate speech on this pod. All right. Well, I, I wish the Longhorns the best of luck. I'm a Big Ten guy myself, even though we've had a really poor showing the past couple uh, couple of years in the uh, in the BCS. But Godspeed to you and the Longhorns. I hope it works out for you all. Thank you. <laughs> well, we are joined now by two great guests to have this conversation, talking about energy tonight on Texas Rising. Global energy markets, some of the turmoil that's that's happening with oil and gas markets, with electricity markets here domestically in the United States. Costs are rising at the pump. Costs are rising. Your, your monthly utility bill, what does that mean? What are the impacts? What are the opportunities for the state of Texas, for companies across the state of Texas? Two great guests. Perfect to talk tonight about these issues. We've got Sam Warfield and Micah Smith. Ben is going to talk about Micah here in a second. Sam Warfield, it was with Arroyo Energy Investors, and they are a great energy private equity firm, investment firm, just north of Houston. Really glad to have Sam on and to be able to talk to us tonight. An honor to also have Mike here. He's been a friend and mentor of mine for years. We worked for years on a number of topics related to oil and gas. But it's also important to note that Micah chose the lesser route and became a, a nuclear submarine officer, while those of us who had higher aspirations literature to the skies. So none of us are perfect, but uh, great to have you both on the show tonight. Too kind, Ben. Mike, like Top Gun Maverick way better than Hot Rod I can't say I blame them. It's, it was a pretty awesome movie, so... All right. So first of all, The Hunt for Red October, not quite Top Gun, but still a solid movie. Classic Sean Connery. I mean, you're really getting the drama. I, you know, I'm not going to I'm not going to lie. There was, there was a point in the peak of my submarine career when I was on watch at the, at the Naval Academy where I put on my whites and have my sword and actually kind of watch this movie late into the night. So <laughs> you got to have your moments. That's outstanding. That's outstanding. Well, so, you know, Mike and Sam, again, really appreciate y'all taking the time to join us tonight. I guess the the first question for you both, just to kind of provide kind of your insight and color on is what the hell? Like what 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 the hell is is happening right now? It seems like energy world is is kind of coming apart at the seams. It seems like prices are are rising dramatically everywhere from you know, and and help people understand for they're seeing unprecedented prices at the pump. They're seeing um, unprecedented diesel prices that are flowing through to the grocery store and and all the goods and services that that they're buying. One of the 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 largest drivers of of inflation right now are high energy costs. They're seeing what historically, at least here in Texas, in the ERCOP market, have been really low in competitive electricity rates that are that are uh, going up sometimes by 40 to 60 percent. I just re-upped my 12-month contract. I had uh, 7.9 cents of KWH, and the cheapest 12-month contract I could find was was 13.6. So help if if you would kind of put it in context for what what's happening and and help people make sense of of kind of what's going on in energy right now. And I don't know, you know, Micah, if you want to take that first and then. Sam? Yeah, just a couple of first ideas. I think a couple of things that stand out. I think one is just, this is a highlight to, to most people in the U.S. and globally on just how important energy really is and how it drives all the obvious things are the price of your gas tank, the price of your power bill, et cetera. But the, the fundamental driver on the price throughout everything from food, transport, clothing, et cetera. I think one of the major inflation drivers we're seeing is just we have a a major pressure on the energy system. And I think that is one of the blows to the inflationary story, which is is not given enough 
talk in the press. It's just not about rates. It's just not about stimulus being pumped in by the government. Those are challenges, but we have a fundamental mismatch between energy supply and demand in the near term. And this will likely continue for a couple of years until things get back in balance. So I think that's, that's one thought. I think the second thing we're really seeing is just how interrelated different parts of the energy sector have become. We used to talk about you know, oil demand almost in isolation. And we used to talk about kind of power demand in the U.S. in isolation. All of those have become much more interlinked, primarily because of the large amount of natural gas on the system, you know, coal leaving the system. And the move to renewables has made, you know, the gas, the linkage, not only within the U.S., but globally with the increase of LNG exports. I think the third piece, and this is, you know, not taking any political perspective, but I think there's a a disconnect between the aspirations around where we would like to go in the energy transition and just the physics and the engineering of what it takes to get there. I think the last two and a half years, what's happened is, I think COVID was a shock to the system and was a real debt to demand. And you saw a lot of the oil and gas players curtailing investment in the industry. Same thing on the natural gas side. Combined with, and Sam, you'll probably have a good perspective on this, a clear mandate from investors to actually return cash to shareholders, to act, especially in upstream investments, not only from a capital discipline perspective, but you know, a real question mark around how much of this is going to be needed five or 10 years down the road. I think a combination of those two, two things really drove to a massive underinvestment in the oil and gas space. And when you saw COVID subside and a real snapback in demand, we had demand for, for energy uh, globally that's higher than it was in 2019 with a level of investment that hasn't caught up yet. And so the price of oil and gas rides in a million barrels a day of production one way or the other, and we're just out of sync. And it's going to take a couple of years to catch up. And at this point, we haven't seen any of the international oil companies or majors be able to catch up with that or willing to overinvest uh, for fear of, I think, you know, destroying capital uh, discipline again, or being accused of, you know, not taking energy transition seriously. So I think those are two challenges we see in the near term, which are going to keep energy prices high and uncertain. Yeah. Yeah. No. Sam, thoughts? I mean, I think Mike did a great job of, of kind of summarizing a lot of different dynamics that are kind of intersecting here. And supply and demand is, is kind of the, the fundamental piece of it. I mean, maybe just to touch on a, a few things that Micah said, which, you know, if you take a step back and just look at the last two and a half years, I mean, I think first and foremost, we should just say for the audience that where we are today is not entirely caused by Russia's invasion of Ukraine. I mean, I think we're going to get to that here in a second in the conversation. I think that's really just accelerated a lot of the themes that Micah just hit upon, really stemming back from two and a half years ago, the, the start of kind of the COVID-19 pandemic, and really demand destruction and people then deciding to kind of shut off supply. But I'll just throw out a couple other interesting pieces here, why, you know, oil and gas markets relate to power markets. And I think I would, I would hit on natural gas which used to be very regional, is now a kind of a global commodity. And so natural gas being the marginal fuel source in most markets in the United States for electricity, that's caused an increase in the power prices. That's caused an increase, Jeff, that you're just talking about as far as your retail electricity contracts that you just signed up, why there's just a dramatic increase in that. There's some additional layers on top of that. We've decided for a number of different reasons, both political, environmental, as well as just pure economics. And really, that's the biggest driver 
of why a lot of baseload coal assets have retired. There used to be this concept of kind of natural gas to coal switching, right? Natural gas prices increased. At some point, coal generation units became more economical. And so they would then, you know, turn on. The natural gas units would turn off. We haven't seen that any anymore. Uh, there's been, you know, just two other things. There's been an underinvestment just in mining in general. So just think about it from a coal perspective. There's less coal. And then there's been an underinvestment in the refinery space. So even if we, you know, pump the barrels out of the ground, the capacity to refine them into the refined products that we use, gasoline, jet fuel, et cetera, diesel, has become constrained. So there's, there's a lot of dynamics here. For this first question, we probably could, could spend a couple hours trying to peel back the various layers here, but maybe I'll, I'll just pause right there. Yeah. So, you know, you, you both talk about capital discipline you know, and and maybe we can flesh that out a little more to kind of help people understand what we're talking about there. And in, in, in my mind, there's there's a couple of things for those that aren't familiar. You know, the uh, ESG, uh, Environmental Social Governance, is a new framework here that's kind of come onto the scene strong here over the past just really five years uh, in, a, in a real con- concerted way. And it has gripped uh, the energy industry in terms of how uh, the energy industry deploys capital capital and uh, what assets and, and what areas it invests in. It seems like energy investors really for the first time are compelling management teams not to deploy that incremental capital, not to increase rig counts, um, not to invest in, in long-term projects because they're they're fearful of what that return looks like over, over the long ter- long-term horizon. And, and I guess my question would be in this new world where you know we've got scarcity that defines high prices, with, with the ESG narrative here over the past couple of years that you know all fossil fuel investments you know will uh, be uninvestable you know in our lifetimes. Do, do we think that that ESG narrative still holds water? Do we think that energy security wins out over over that previous energy ESG narrative? How, how, what do we think the new landscape looks like? Yeah, Michael, maybe I'll, I'll take that one first. I mean, I think from my perspective, you know, ESG, the concept and the theme that we've really seen materially increase for the last two and a half years, I, I think that's here to stay. That's my my personal view. I mean, I, I think that what is going on in the commodity markets, really just all markets today, I think puts the spotlight on energy security, energy reliability. Maybe there'll be, you know, hopefully uh, more of a balance. I, I think with respect to, you know, whatever commodity you're talking about, I think you know, balance, moderation. Uh, are important, but I think that concept's here to stay. And, and maybe just to to connect a couple dots on kind of ESG and and kind of capital discipline or or underinvestment. Now, I think I'll just take kind of the oil and gas space first on this particular topic, which is you know COVID, the pandemic happened, of course, oil and gas prices uh, went down dramatically, and I think there was just an inflection point from a from a kind of truthfully a public shareholder perspective, when you look back over the last 10 years, truthfully, since the shale revolution, that the returns that public shareholders had gained from investing in oil and gas stocks was really not up to snuff for for them, because the mantra had been to uh, take free cash flow and essentially redeploy it in the business to grow, you know, to to pump more uh, barrels of oil, natural gas, etc. And so, what occurred 
you know, two and a half years ago, I think, was a was a shift in in the public mindset. One, you know, the returns in oil and gas stocks from a risk reward perspective, I think there are other places that you know institutional investors could put their capital. I think that that's one. And two, the uh, the acceleration uh, as as far as kind of the ESG theme was concerned. I, I think you're going to start to see and, and maybe have seen over the last month or two some of the institutional investors come back into the oil and gas sector. I think that's year to date, Micah probably knows better than me, but I think the oil and gas sector, as far as all of the S&P subsectors has been outperforming every other subsector. So I think there's some institutional investors coming back in, but I think your question, you know, and, and really this kind of hits home for me is, is kind of an infrastructure investor and having to take a, a medium to long-term view, which is, you know, in an environment where, you know, you, you have some political rhetoric, some regulatory rhetoric, and just kind of the historical track record, you know, you're, you as an investor are investing that dollar to get a return on that dollar for an appropriate uh, risk that you're putting in. And so the landscape's changing. There's a lot of volatility. It's an interesting dynamic. I, I think you are going to see more capital flows into the oil and gas space, whether that's just near term, to, you know, to, to kind of, uh, you know, address or maybe capture the volatility that we're seeing today, does that extend medium term, long term? That's a question mark, uh, truthfully, on my side. Yeah, Sam, I, I agree. And I, I don't think ESG is, is dead or, or on, the, on the decline. I do think the current situation, and again, this inflation was happening before the Russian invasion of Ukraine, but I, I do think it, it brought a couple of stark points to, to everyone's mind. I think Germany is the is the perfect example, you know, had become over-dependent on natural gas from Russia. And you see the effects of what this, just the, the, the turning back over the last two weeks on supplies has, has looked like. And you start to see this affecting just not the power grid. This affects, you know, ammonia manufacturing, fertilizers, chemical plants, et cetera, is having a real impact on uh, the German economy. So I, th- I think people are, are starting to get their mind around they have to have a, a more practical, fact-based view of the transition. And the fact that you saw Germany tie up is 1.5 million tons of LNG capacity with two 20-year terms means that they have come to grips with the fact that you know, natural gas is going to be part of their power system for at least 20 years. And so I think I think you'll see more of that come to the forefront. You know, I think natural gas will get more of its due on a decarbonization force. The EQT uh, guys have been pretty vocal about environmentally friendly U.S. LNG export could potentially be the biggest decarbonization force you know, in the, in the globe over the next 10 years, if we actually use that to displace coal in some places that um, where that's the current power generation mix. So I think that balance view is going to be important. I do think from an investor perspective, we're already seeing some of the bolder investors starting to take a view around just what the reality is that may be unpopular. So you've seen a lot of hedge funds um, buy up assets, a lot of private money buy up assets, basically making their bets I think Sam's right. We have seen some more institutional um, investors come in, I think, more on the momentum trade. I think they're going to need a little more signaling from governments around a, a different lens around how these investments may play out for them to make you know, more robust, you know, strategic, you know, plays over the long term focused on cash. I do think Harold Hammond's a good example of some companies who are just going to say, look, I just have a fundamentally different view. I like the cash flow of this business, but, you know, I'm not going to argue in the public markets and we could see a lot more of those low private options. 
So I'm interested in exploring the transition a little bit more. You mentioned some implications from the Ukraine invasion in Germany and the, the natural gas implications. People think about you know net zero by 2040 or 2050. They assume it's going to come from solar or wind or hydro or whatever. But they don't realize how much of a base petroleum is going to provide. And Mike, I know you know McKinsey's done a lot of work on this to figure out what the different cases could be, but. Can both of you kind of shed light on what is the role of petroleum over the next 20 to 30 years, even beyond? Is it going to go to zero? Is it going to be pretty significant? How should we think about what energy sources are going to displace others, either by government action or by private industry making decisions that the consumers are demanding? Yeah, I'll go to the facts that you must have and that you should pile on. I, mean, I think the question of, does oil and gas ever go away? I think there's actually pretty good alignment across all, all, all views that, that that's not the case. If you look at net zero by 2050, even in 2050, you can look at the EIA and all the different pathways. You still need about, you know, you know, 40 to 45 million barrels per day of production. And, and part of that is from the chemicals uh, industry, et cetera. So there, there is going to need to be oil and gas produced in the future. Right now we're at 100 million barrels a day. So you could say, well, that's substantially less. The other thing that people gloss over is oil and gas is a depleting resource. So every day globally, you lose about, depending on the fuel, et cetera, but four to five percent depletion is not a bad number. So if, if, if we're consuming 100 million barrels per day this year and we put no more capital into the industry to bring on no more barrels, you know, next year we're short five million barrels per day. Right, so you could play this out between now and 2050 and, and say that, well, gosh, not only do we need. 40 million barrels per day in 2050, but we need a lot to be brought online between now and then. I think this is the this is the view of where are the most carbon efficient barrels. One of the little known facts is people think a lot of the offshore deep water drilling or some of them, you know, it must be super carbon intensive and environmentally challenging. They're actually some of the lowest carbon barrels that you can find out there. The Gulf of Mexico in the U.S. is about seven kilograms of CO2 per barrel uh, when you bring it up. And so what we need to do is look at those type of plays and make the right investments on those over the long term, which bring on the right hydrocarbon barrels at the right price, but for the lowest carbon footprint, because we are going to need some of those in 2050. Yeah, I would just add, I mean, one quick point, and maybe just a concept that I heard recently that's worth uh, maybe exploring, which is, you know, natural gas particularly is going to be here for the long term. And so I'm just thinking about it from an electricity power perspective, which is, and there really are no other technologies today that are dispatchable and flexible, right? So that are able to, you know, not only crank up in the hottest of hot days and the summer colds of cold days in the winter, but are able to stay online in case there's, you know, unexpected heat wave uh, that lasts for a substantial period of time or, you know, winter storm that lasts for an unexpected period of time. So, you know, will there be technology advances? Uh, absolutely. Um, but if, if I look out long term, you know, I think uh, natural gas has to be a, uh, a cornerstone with respect to power generation sources for the electricity markets. And then, you know, just one other kind of concept I, I heard uh, recently, which is, I think is, is interesting. The first is we, we talk about the energy transition. And, you know, I heard this from Professor Scott Tinker, who, who's at UT. He says, it's really, you know, we should really think about it as an emissions transition, right? I mean, there's a lot of things that we're talking about today, carbon capture, talk about, 
green hydrogen. We talk a lot about uh, technologies of the future, but we're really talking about, you know, transitioning emissions. And, and Mike, I think you just mentioned that too, which is like not every barrel of oil has the same carbon intensity uh, where it comes from. And are there things that we can do with respect to detecting methane, et cetera, uh, when it comes to oil and gas production to reduce the carbon intensity of, of every single barrel that comes out of the ground. So um, anyways, uh, I don't want to go too far there if you guys want to take it a different direction. But I thought that was an interesting concept. We, we hear energy transition all of the time, but are we really talking about an emissions transition, right? Is that really what we're talking about? Yeah. So with all those things in mind, maybe we can shift it more to like the local. What are the implications for Texas? Like how should our listeners who are interested in the rise of Texas and the energy mix we have here, how does this play in the global stage? Where will we see increases in the economic base here in Texas? How will those shift? What are you guys seeing in your work that uh, applies to Texas? Ben, from my perspective, you know, short term, things are going to be painful for everybody in the U.S., for Texans, et cetera, Um, price of the pump, you know, their electricity prices, their natural gas prices, going to the grocery store. You know, everything's going to be painful and we could talk about kind of timing there uh, separately. But if we if we look past kind of the short term pain from just an economics perspective and an opportunity set perspective, you know, Texas is and I think, Jeff, you, you've said this before, but right. Not only the great oil and gas producing state and that, that's notorious for that, but it's also, um, you know, essentially number one from a renewable production perspective in, in the U.S. as well. Right, just a tremendous amount of wind resources, wind assets uh, in West Texas, an increasing amount of solar assets that you're seeing pop up uh, all across Texas. So that's just, you know, truthfully uh, one aspect. I mean, I think you know, we talked about natural gas being part of the the global story. Well, LNG, liquefied natural gas, there are huge export terminals uh, in the Gulf Coast, in Texas, et cetera. That's only going to continue because of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Europe's demanding more LNG. Asia's demanding more LNG. Uh, so you're going to see these massive, uh, massive facilities uh, that are, you know, uh, essentially uh, liquefying the natural gas, which is a, you know, a, a pretty interesting process in and of itself. But moving just a tremendous amount of molecules really out of Texas to uh, to supply these other regions. So. I mean, those are just three quick snippets. I, I think, you know, Texas is going to be the, the center, uh, continue to be the center for those three areas. And I think it's well positioned, truthfully, for the new technologies, right? Houston slash the Gulf Coast is vying to be a kind of a, a hydrogen hub. A lot of people doing a lot of work on that. Carbon capture, I think, you know, anybody you talk to, Houston and Texas in general, uh, are kind of at the, at the forefront of that. So I think uh, Texas is, is really well positioned from a business perspective, uh, but it is going to be painful in the short term. Yeah, Sam, I, I love that you pointed out the fact that Texas leads the, uh, the country in renewables, a point I love to hang over my friends in California's heads every time we talk about the topic. But I, I, look, I'm, I'm bullish on Texas. I think we have a lot of great things going for us. I think, number one, I think we have a, a very strong economy. And if you continue to look at the, uh, at, at the population, and the uh, the amount of corporations that are moving to Texas, uh, uh, that strong economy is going to allow us to weather 
and really navigate any type of emissions trans transition. I'm going to steal that Sam from now on. The, the rest of the country uh, doesn't have the benefit because part of the challenge is as you transition your grid and you put a lot of renewables, et cetera, in, it, there's just, it's hard to get away from the fact that that costs more. So how can you have low growth and how can you have population growth, which allow you to actually make those moves on, on, on your grid and network in a way that doesn't, you know, put an affordability challenge unduly on certain parts of the population or actually become a GDP drag, you know, on your state. I think some of the other states are, are, are going to come to come to that challenge you know, in, in the next uh, couple of years. Um, but I do think we've got great resources. I think two things we need to be wary of and solve. I, I, I do think we just need to continue to do some thinking on how we bring stability to the grid. The federal subsidies, which drove the renewables boom in West Texas, didn't come with the uh, the grid reliability capacity investments that we need. And, and that's something we need to solve in a way that doesn't feel like a tax, doesn't feel like a, a re-regulation, but it's the fact that we just can't have a winter storm year event, you know, even over 20 years, it's just too frequent for the grid to withstand and for people to not have the pain that we all live through. I think the second is, um, I do think we need to be wary of some of the infrastructure investments outside of our state, which are required to actually keep uh, the price of natural gas primarily low in, um, in Texas. And so I think, you know, Sam, you, you highlighted the fact that LNG demand internationally is going to, you know, price is probably about 30 to 40 uh you know, dollar MBTU, um, which is great for all of our export capacity, et cetera. Uh, the benefit is we also have between uh, West Texas off gas and Marcellus, we have over a hundred years of natural gas supply with a lifting cost of about $1.50 per MBTU. So in theory, we could be able to get all of that gas to the Gulf Coast, export it, have international markets pay us 35 bucks. And as long as we don't have full capacity to export all of it, all of the limit of the LNG, we could have, we could have a world where Henry Hub could price it three to four dollars per MBTU, and the price in Europe could still be 35. The challenge we have now is we don't have enough pipeline capacity to get the Marcellus gas out of Western Pennsylvania into either the Gulf Coast or over to the Carolinas, you know, uh, and that's because we've had two major pipelines either canceled or vacated. And if we continue to have that infrastructure gap between those two basins, this is what's causing us to have seven fifty, eight, nine dollars per MOBTU in Texas and the Gulf Coast, when there's no reason for it to price at that if we just had those investments. Yeah. And, and if good folks on the East Coast don't want Marcellus gas, then the folks in Berlin and Dusseldorf sure do. Sure do. So, you know, my here. So I would like the two of you to talk me off of a ledge, if you could, because my view on the current pricing environment, obviously, if you're you're an oil and gas shareholder, uh, I think it's it's going to it's going to be a period of, of plenty. At the same time, just talking about, you know, uh, families trying to fill up at the pump, uh, trying to buy groceries at an affordable uh, price off the shelf. Uh, kind of give me your view on the on the future of the pricing environment. You know, we've traded down here over the past, just call it two, two and a half weeks and just call it round numbers, you know, $105 Brent, you know, $105 WTI, you know, but at the same time, you still have, you know, 50, 60% of Chinese GDP 
that is either currently still in lockdown or is in the process of coming out of COVID lockdown. So, um, you know, at, as the second largest uh, economy in the world, there's going to be a lot of barrels flowing to to China, and there's not a lot of uh, spare capacity in the global system. So, you know, my, I'm I'm very concerned uh, just with that reopening trade. What what the pricing environment looks like moving forward, and and the implications um, on goods and services and prices at the pump for for people here in Texas. So if you would kind of not a lot of prognostication, but you know, if, if you can kind of share where you, where you think that that pricing uh, is going moving forward and, and talk me off the ledge, please. Well, I don't know that I'm going to talk you off the ledge, but I'm trying to push you off the ledge. Um, if, if I call prices, I'd be at a different job, but you know, I, I, it's hard for me to imagine a world where we get below, I mean, maybe, maybe, maybe drop below hundred, but, Getting below 85 or 80, I just don't see. And it's because of what you just said, Jeff. Again, we've had two and a half years of underinvestment. There's just no other way to describe that. And we've had demand bounce back to 2019. You still have a good slug of Chinese GDP yet to be unlocked. And we we still haven't seen global uh, air travel come back, but it will. So the short story is, despite all of the efforts and thoughts, we just haven't seen any global demand destruction to speak of. So, and I'm not saying there won't be a peak oil demand in the future, but we haven't hit it yet. So it is going to go up. And so, so we're underinvested on supply. Now there are certain barrels that can be brought on faster and I'll just, I'll not comment on the inefficacy of reducing the strategic petroleum reserve in the near term, but, but that doesn't cut it, right? So, so which kind of a barrels can be brought on? The great thing for us, Texas is, Premium barrels can be bought on. So maybe you've seen Chevron, Exxon, others announce they're going to increase their, their capital uh, spend slightly. They're also getting much more efficient in the wells they're drilling. So for the same amount of capital, they're getting longer laterals and more production. That will help. You know. So, but if we got a million or two barrels more per day out of premium, that would be huge. I still don't think that closes the gap. If you see the GDP come back in China aviation, et cetera. And so you got to look for other short-term barrels. We could look to OPEC plus. If you really dig into the numbers though, uh, other than the UAE and Saudi Arabia, no country in OPEC is, is, is producing their previous allotment. So when they come out and say they're going to increase by 900 and some thousand barrels, we're really going to test how much does Saudi and the UAE, ha- UAE have in reserve. I think there's lots of questions and conjecture. I don't think they can make up the Delta. So I just can't see anything in the near term in the next one, two, maybe three years where we kind of get that supply back out in front of demand, barring a massive demand destruction or a real spike in investment from the industry and capital. And again, we're talking about big engineering projects. Things just don't move on a dot. I generally agree with that, uh, unfortunately, for the folks that are going to the pump and, and filling up or, or paying their monthly electricity or natural gas bill. I mean, I, I think we're we're in it for a little bit if it's you know, is it six months, a year, two years, three years? I think that's a tough call. The only thing I was going to say is, you know, generally speaking, the cure for high prices is high prices. But because of the lag effect with respect to a new investment, putting aside kind of the, the permitting piece to it, um, but just, you know, just take the drilling completions production piece. I mean, it, it just takes time. Um, and we, we don't have, I would say, overall structure that's accelerating that. Even if everybody was kind of given the full green light, turn on the, the spigot, I mean, it would take time. I think that, you know, my personal view is that 
you know, if you look back at, at previous cycles, you know, it's always uh, a little bit of apples and oranges to compare what we're currently in. I think I'm, I'm a little bit hopeful that it's, it's going to be, you know, sooner than, than two years where things start to uh, right size. There's just a lot of volatility in the market. Jeff, you mentioned things have backed up over the last two and a half weeks. You know, looking at the Fords, I, I mean, the, and I don't, you know, we, we don't trade any commodities, right? We're, we're medium to long-term infrastructure investors, but just, you know, reading articles, seeing kind of the prints from the Fords, there's just a tremendous amount of volatility. And, and it ultimately comes down to supply and demand, right? People forecasting, is there going to be demand destruction at these, prices for airline tickets, at these prices to do your cross-country trip with your family over the summer. Is there going to be demand destruction? I think it's just a big question mark. And and the China piece complicates it because we really do have a, a global market, particularly for oil and now seemingly for natural gas as well. Yeah. Yeah, so I'm, I might comment on that last piece. I do, I do think the summer's going to be interesting because I fully agree that the trip high price you drive prices. So, so you, we should see, you know, Americans curtailing driving. I do think in the near term, we may have a hard time piecing that up because I think last, last summer was a good summer travel. It, it does feel like this summer, people are like, for two years, I haven't taken this trip and by gosh, I'm going to take it. Um, and so I, I think we may see a, a bit of a cloudy view of that over the summer and not the, not the pullback we would have seen had we not seen people cooped up for two years and, and really wanted to get out there and, 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 and go somewhere. I believe the direct quote from my wife was, you can pry these airplane tickets from my cold dead hands. <laughs> so I've, I've had the same conversations in our house, Jeff. I hear your pain. So as we, as we close this out, gentlemen, this has been a great conversation. I want you to put your, your crystal ball in place. President Biden calls you up and says, Micah, Sam, what do I do over the next two years to get energy back on track? What's your advice to him and the policymakers? Yeah, <laughs> let me look in the crystal ball here. I mean, I, I, think, I think one, you know, you have to recognize, as everybody probably does, but just not, not admitting it to the public is, you know, we don't have all the answers, right? We can only control so much, but we don't have all the answers. But what could you do today? I would probably personally avoid uh, talking about kind of a federal tax holiday or encouraging the states for a you know state tax holiday for gasoline or diesel. I mean, I, I think that's a kind of a short-term fix, and that might be generous in and of itself because that that could just increase demand. I, I, listen, I, I think you have to address kind of the the medium to long-term picture, right? So talk themes as far as kind of underinvestment, talk themes about um, infrastructure projects taking just a long time to go through the permitting process to be online. So, you know, where I would start is, you know, I, I think you just have to kind of set a course structurally and give the green light to the investment community that if they do invest a, a dollar, that they will get a return on that dollar, that there won't be these huge swings as far as kind of, you know, is oil and gas kind of an investable asset class, or are we just focused on quote unquote energy transition uh, items? So kind of dance around that a little bit, Ben, but I, I would say 
you know, if, if you ask me, I would say you need to, you know, kind of streamline the permitting process. I think you, you need to have kind of a, a message that balances okay, um, that you can still pursue the energy transition in group A, as well as making investments in the oil and gas space. You need both truthfully to achieve whatever you want to achieve in 2050. I think you do those two things that signals to the investment community that they are going to get a return of their capital and on their capital. I think that would be a good place to start. It doesn't really change the short-term pain that, you know, everyday Texans are going to face, but it will probably bring in, you know, when things do start to normalize from you know, maybe three years to two years or a year and a half or a year, something like that. No, Sam, I, I think you said it well. And I, I think it needs to be a, a conversation that brings everyone together and says, you know, the, the world, the U.S. needs more energy and we need to do it in a, in a way that moves towards the transition. But that's going to take all forms of energy over a period of time. So I think things like accelerating some of the the permitting and you know incentivizing some of the lng builds to bring more you know cheap clean lng for that uh, load following fuel to markets would be a great start there's probably some policies around you know to sam's earlier point around how can we incentivize reduction in methane emissions in certain fields because that 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 should make economic and environmental sense i also think someone told us the other day maybe the wall street journal but the, the comment around it's going to take a huge amount of investment to get to net zero in 2050. You know, I think an incremental probably $3 trillion a year above what we're currently spending on energy infrastructure. And the only way we're going to be able to afford that is to have a thriving GDP and creating opportunities for, for economies to grow. I am aware of this in, the, in this near term, if, if, if we end up going sideways through high energy prices into some you know, four or five year, you know, economic stagflation starting in Europe with, you know, you know, some of the, again, the manufacturing industries having high energy prices that cause them to shut down the contagion. This puts the world on the back foot on making the transition. We need to be on the front foot. So how do we actually kind of ramp up GDP, get energy prices back down, and then get a balanced approach to transition that looks at all energy sources in a responsible way? That, that's what I would probably do. Mike and Sam, I really appreciate y'all taking time this evening to to walk our listeners through some of these big meaty topics that we've all been reading and hearing so much about over the past few weeks. One of the blessings that I think about, you know, us living here and, and being in Texas, uh, one of my favorite quotes, former governor George W. Bush said, some folks look at me and see a certain swagger, which in Texas is called walking. So the great thing about our state is, you know, we're going to figure it out and we've got plentiful resources and, and some of the best minds and businesses anywhere in the world. So I think we can all take comfort in that. So the market will definitely find a solution. And it's great to hear from, from two minds in that marketplace. So really appreciate y'all taking time to talk with us tonight. Thank you for listening to another episode of Texas Rising with Jeff Bailey and Ben Coleman. We hope you enjoyed the show. If you did, don't forget to like, subscribe, and leave a review of the show wherever you listen to podcasts. Well, that's it for us this week. And remember, folks, keep on the straight and narrow, don't mess with Texas, and we'll see you next week on Texas Rising.